Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. So what are you supposed to do between each Engadget podcast? Wait in silence? I'm Matt Smith, and every morning I walk through the day's biggest tech stories. It's short, relevant, and ready for listening whenever you wake up. Find Engadget Morning Edition wherever you find your podcasts, or ask your smart speaker for the latest news from Engadget. What's up, Internet, and welcome back to the Engadget Podcast. I'm Senior Editor Devendra Hardawar. I'm Reviews Editor Sherlyn Lowe. And this week, we are joined by our Editor-in-Chief, Dana Woolman. Hey, Dana. Hello. How's it going? You're joining for a rare occasion, a whole <laughs> new version of Windows, and we're going to be diving into Windows 11, all the Surface devices. Dana reviewed one, I reviewed one, and we'll be talking about a bunch of other stuff, too. Some Android news, some Google uh, green news from Sherlyn and Krista Bell is going to join us to talk about the Facebook, um, basically all the stuff that the whistleblower has uh, kind of revealed lately. As always, if you're enjoying the Engadget podcast, please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Leave us a review on iTunes. That's really super helpful. And you can drop us an email at podcast at Engadget.com. So Dana, I really, really want to chat with you about this because Windows 11 is here. You know, we have both spent some time with it. Uh, Sherlyn, you have too at your preview event. So yeah. what what are your overall thoughts about Windows 11, Dana? Because it is a rare occasion to have a whole new version of Windows. All right. Well, I'm going to whistleblow myself and say that um, sure. uh, <laughs> that I was one of the people who said that Windows 11 was ugly, um, who you alluded to. I was to so mad. Windows 11 <laughs> review. I take it back. Um, it's, it's uncluttered. It's clean. Um, I think what I was really responding to, I think what you were hearing was grouchiness about the center aligned, um, start, start menu, which you can, of course, I hear that from everybody, not just you, Dana, it's everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So I was a bit of a happier camper once I went into the taskbar settings and just pushed it back to the left where I feel like it belongs. Um, but you know, I had a pleasant experience and I would go sort of rewind right back to the, um, even the setup process, um, it was smooth. It was efficient. The splash screens were pretty. Um, setting up Windows Hello took so little time that it actually alarmed me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like, how could yeah, this be? It was really fast. Yeah, how could it be so accurate if it was if it looked at my face for you know like millisecond? Um, you know, it's a little annoying that you need a Microsoft account. I happen to have one already. I already had two-factor authentication set up with um, the Microsoft Authenticator app. So I think for me specifically, it really was painless. But, you know, handing the machine to Brian O, our video producer to shoot, it was like, oh, you don't have a Microsoft account. Oh, like, are we going to make one for you? Or am I going to give you the a- pin to my account and just <laughs> sign out of anything sensitive, you know? That's usually that's usually what I do, but let, let's be clear here too. So there there is a new restriction, right? Despite Windows 11 looking so much cleaner and nicer and being friendlier, uh, one thing Microsoft told us is that Windows 11 Home, the one a lot of people, the cheaper one that a lot of people are going to be getting, uh, you know, with a new PC or when they uh, 
I think you could still buy it individually, but it requires both an internet connection and a Microsoft account to set up your device. You cannot set up your device without those things. And before uh, Windows 10 was smart enough to be like, if you're online, it would ask for a Microsoft account. If you don't have one, it would kind of default to local account. You can't do that anymore on Windows 11 Home. I think that's going to be super annoying for a lot of people. Microsoft did tell me you can set up a local account afterwards. So like after you set up Dana, and if you went into user accounts and was like, hey, let's make an Engadget account for our video guy to just jump into, you could do that. But again, kind of annoying. Windows 11 Pro, the version like IT people and other folks will have, doesn't have that restriction at all because they have to like deploy labs and stuff. So um, I guess you were already like immediately feeling the frustration of some of the restrictions uh, Microsoft put on Dana, right? I think in, in that specific use case, but otherwise, I don't want to take away from the experience of using Windows. Um, for me, it felt, um, it just felt like an uncluttered experience. It felt familiar enough. I didn't feel like I was dropped into an entirely new world. I read your review and I know you and maybe some other users are missing the, um, the rollover text on the icons. Um, Not even rollover, just like having, so the thing we don't have at all in Windows 11 is the ability to see like window labels, you know, the actual like name of your window in the taskbar. Can't do that anymore. They killed it. Um, and that that has kind of messed up my workflow. And I think for a lot of other people, too, I know folks from The Verge and Gizmodo and other sites are complaining about the same things. I really enjoyed, um, speaking of workflow, I enjoyed the um, the ability to hover over the maximize icon in Windows and sort of select precisely where on the screen your app is going to appear. Because before this, really, I found sort of the split screen experience in basically any OS I've used to be sort of kludgy, whether it was Windows, Mac OS, iPad OS. I just really liked that you could designate where the app was going to go and not have to sort of tinker with it with fine sort of touchpad um, motions, um, especially if you're using a not very good trackpad. Um, so I really enjoyed that. Um, and now I think with that, I think windows by far has the better split view multitasking experience of any of the OSs that I've been using lately. I think that's been the case for a very long time, but I, I will get into fights with Apple people about that. Uh, what you're talking about is the snap to functionality. If you hover over your window for the maximize button, you could push, you could push that window to like the top left corner or the bottom right corner, or like to have it take over the you know one side of the screen. And actually I have an ultra wide monitor here too. So I see a whole other row. I see like uh, the ability to like put a window right in the middle and then put two others. Once you choose and put a window somewhere, you can also quickly start adding windows into other spots and other quadrants in your screen, which I think is really cool. Um, so I really dig that part. Sherlyn, what are your like overall thoughts on Windows 11 at this point? Hearing y'all talk about this Snap2 feature as like one of your favorites makes me feel like, and, and we've talked about this before in previous episodes of the podcast too, which is that Snap2 actually is one of the touch-friendliest things that Microsoft has done uh, for Windows in a long time. And it's clearly still trying to make its like touch-friendly version of Windows happen, except for like not a separate version and just bake everything in. Because I think the future that Microsoft sees with PCs is that everything's going to be a touchscreen. Mm -hmm. Which is very different from, I believe, Mac, right? Because until today, y'all don't have a, a touchscreen well, MacBook. It's uh, <laughs> it's very, it's very, it's like different war strategies, right? Because yeah, 
the iPhone and iPad were the things that made touchscreens popular among consumer electronics. But Apple has always had this like clear line between its mobile devices and the desktop stuff, right? And they they have not, at most, they're giving us iPad apps, you know, uh, and iPhone apps in macOS. But beyond that, we're not getting touchscreens or anything just yet. Uh, I don't, how do you feel about that, Dana? Because I know you're primarily a Mac user now, but you're using, you've been testing a Windows device with a touchscreen, the Surface Pro 8. Did, did that feel different or better, you know, as a desktop experience than your MacBook? I loved it. And I mean, I think for me, um, I, I don't think this is specific to Microsoft. I, I would make the same criticism sometimes of Apple. I think when I receive a device like the Surface Pro to review, I think in a sense, sometimes Microsoft oversells the pen experience. Not to say it's for no one, but I think for me, at least the more relevant thing is I use the touchscreen ad hoc um, when I least expect to. So I'm typing on the keyboard and then for whatever reason, it's more convenient to just reach up with my index finger and tap the screen. And I think that doesn't make for a very exciting demo if you're um, Microsoft and you're unveiling these devices at a new event. But it's sort of those smaller um, unexpected moments. Like I can't explain why in a certain moment it's more convenient to use my finger, um, even if the trackpad is otherwise perfectly reliable. But um, that's actually, I enjoy it a lot. And that's the more relevant use case for me. Not that the pen isn't fun, but... um, we're not all pen people. I, I think the main problem with the pen and, and the use case you're thinking of, Dana, I, I mean, for me anyway, is, is when I'm signing a document and I have to, to randomly draw something on the screen, a trackpad just sucks for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, But the thing is, I wouldn't buy a pen for $130 just to sign the occasional document. Right. And especially if, um, at least if you don't buy the type, the signature type cover with the Pro 8, you don't have an onboard slot that charges the the mm-hmm. uh, Slim Pen and the Slim Pen 2, I guess. Slim Pen um, 2, yeah. Yeah, which we can talk about in a little bit because it all, it's all <laughs> haptic and shiz. Uh, <laughs> but, but that's why I like uh, something like Samsung's Galaxy Book uh, because it has the S Pen on board. That's the mm-hmm. book Three six uh, the book flex not the book pro um, book pro yeah. is a separate it doesn't have a holder but anyway I, I'm I, shaking I, my head point, because yeah. of course uh, Sherlin will bring up the Samsung <laughs> Galaxy book like of I course like it. of course QLED screens um, <laughs> I, the thing about the pen and I think this is what flummoxes a lot of people too maybe it's why Microsoft does include it with the surfaces because I think they used to with the early models if I was back in like college right and sitting through a lecture and you're taking notes and the notes aren't things that you can just like type into your screen so like when I was taking um, a logic course for philosophy or something like that's symbols and it's things you're writing down and like or if you're taking a math course or you just want to like draw diagrams a computer is not the best way to do that and I know a lot of people who have like a notebook nearby and they sketch down notes and stuff too for those folks having like an onboard way to just quickly jot things down not be constrained by a keyboard and trackpad I think that's really cool um, yeah, it's not for everybody, but I'm, I am glad somebody like Microsoft is like actually focusing on those inputs. Um, but yeah, any, any other broad thoughts about Windows 11, Dana? Because I want to talk about your Pro 8 thoughts as well about the actual machine. Um, well, we covered multitasking and just, um, yeah. uh, it, it's funny. I showed Windows 11 to my boyfriend, who's an avid, um, Windows user. The first thing he did was he went into the settings, 
Like it was sort of like <laughs> nice settings. Yeah. I don't think he's the only Windows user who would do this. I do think there is like a Windows personality. But the first thing he did, he was it was like he was less concerned with the aesthetics, but he wanted to go into the settings and make sure that um, everything was still there as if like, I don't know right. what he was worried about that Microsoft would like stealthily steal away some of the options. They like, did do that to be <laughs> fair. Yeah. <laughs> it was like an inspection of the options to make sure that Microsoft mm-hmm. hadn't somehow dumbed down the settings menu from one version to another. And he seemed satisfied mm-hmm. enough and then like handed the machine back to me. And I was like, Oh, you don't care about the hardware. And it was like, eh, it's nice. Um, yeah. Yeah. But um all of which is to say, and I mean, I think you made this point in your review. I think um, I don't think this is a monumental upgrade over the previous version. I think a lot of the changes are nice and welcome, and I think they add up to something fulsome. But it, it does not feel like um, a huge, huge um, departure from the previous experience. It's a uh, so I basically sketched out a little Aaron Sorkin like meeting in my review because this is really how I saw it happening. Two years ago, Microsoft announced Windows 10X. We've talked about it here on the podcast. That was supposed to be their, you know, fancy dual screened operating system. We'd have dual screen PCs like the Surface Neo. Dell was building them. Like everybody was working on them. I think then the pandemic happened and a lot of like hardware design really slowed down. And last year, Microsoft announced like, okay, okay, Windows 10X uh, only for single screen devices, you know, uh, really thin laptops and stuff like that. And then earlier this year, they were like, no, 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 we're not releasing Windows 10X. I'm just going to forget about that. And then like two weeks later, Sachin Nadella is just like, hey, guys, we, we got a whole new version of Windows. Can you believe it? it? It just came out of nowhere. So I do feel like this like minor update or this like what what would have been like a side update to Windows 10 ended up being this overall update they're pushing to everybody, um, mainly because it is so design focused. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but it does feel uh, it feels like they're taking advantage of the current momentum of the PC market. A lot of people are working from home. A lot of people are still doing school from home. So people need new PCs um, and they're more interested in buying stuff at this point. It just doesn't feel like uh, I have a feeling at the beginning of this year, which was, what, nine months ago? Windows 11 as a concept probably didn't even exist. I think they were looking at all of this work they put into Windows 10X and be like, uh, uh, what, what do I do with this? We can make this a Windows 10 service pack, but nobody really cares about that. But if you just make it 11, just go to 11, all of a sudden it gets news. Uh, it gets me spending my whole weekend reviewing it, um, things like that. So I think Microsoft kind of got us, but... That, that's the big thing. Um, people have been asking me, like, should they rush out and upgrade if they can? I don't think so. I think you should just wait a little because uh, even on my desktop right now, which involved me doing, <laughs> I had to do some command line work. I had to turn on Secure Boot and the TPM 2.0 module. I had to convert my disk from an MBR disk to a GPT disk in the freaking command line like, uh, like I was in 1995. Um, because Secure wouldn't see this old type. Uh, there are a lot of like annoying things happening right now. When I boot my desktop, this just started happening like two days ago. Windows 11 launches. It kind of looks at the login screen, then it reboots, and then it lets me log in. So there, there are weird things happening, folks. Don't rush out on upgrade. There are some exclusive features like direct storage, which is going to make games load faster. Um, and like uh, that's going to be exclusive to Windows 11, but a lot of things won't be. Auto HDR, the new store app, the new Xbox app are all going to be on Windows 10. So 
this is a qu- weird point that we're on right now. Um, but you know what? Shoot us any questions you guys have about Windows 11. Check out my review. It is uh, very long. And yeah. we have a uh, we have a video that's going to be going up later this week, too, hopefully. But let's move on to, like, the actual Surface devices. Dana, you reviewed the Surface Pro 8. How long has it been since you've, like, spent a lot of time with the Surface? Because this is the biggest Surface update since, like, Surface Laptop 4 or Surface uh, Pro 4, I think, basically. So I felt like yeah. I was in for a treat. Yeah, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time first rereading um, our review of the Surface Pro 7 from last year. And, I mean, I know one of our few complaints was that the design at the time felt dated. So this is – I don't – I think it's a little inaccurate to call it a brand new design just because it takes cues from the Surface Pro X, which itself came out two years ago. But I think in terms of the flagship Surface Pro, it's still a newer design than what you guys had experienced um, just a year ago. Um, but the hard hardware, it feels it feels premium. Um, and I mean, even like the snap that the kickstand makes when you snap it into place, something about the sound even sounds <laughs> high so end. Um, yeah. I felt a little clumsy using it. Um, there aren't really, there's not really a sufficient space for your fingers to really um, latch onto. And so actually pulling the kickstand out, even after a few days of using the device, still felt clumsy for me. I felt a little sheepish every time I struggled to do it. Maybe I'm not going to be the only user who struggles with that. But um, the good news is once you get the kickstand out, it's um, a great experience, both on a flat surface like a desk. I was able to use it on my lap successfully as well. Um, I like that you have different options with the keyboard. I like that you can lay it flat. I like that you can uh, magnetically lift it up. The typing experience was good for me. I understand it was a good typing experience on the previous generation as well. Um, But really the star of the show for me and one of the marquee new features was the 120 hertz fast refresh screen. And I noted this in my review. I don't like leaning on cliches in my writing. And it does feel like a cliche to say, oh, like you won't like you won't know what you're missing until you flip it on and then do a side-by-side comparison. But actually you do notice a difference once it's made obvious to you. Um, So people should know that 60 Hertz is actually what's enabled out of the box. And Mm -hmm. there's a reason for that. It's, it's battery life. Um, But uh, once you do turn on 120 Hertz, everything just feels a little zippier. Um, And I don't want to make it sound like performance is sluggish in 60 hertz mode. It's just like there's this slight pause, like hesitation. You can notice it. Yeah, yeah. In, in opening and closing apps and moving elements that you notice not at all or a lot less in 120 hertz mode. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, that. so the hertz, the refresh rate talk, that refers to like how fast the screen is refreshing and the higher the number, the more organic and fluid it is. Like, so it looks like real life. And we've talked about this before in the show. Uh, these devices, the Surface Pro 8 and the Surface Laptop Studio that I'm going to be talking about are the first like consumer PCs or certainly Windows PCs that have this that aren't gaming laptops. And I think that's a, uh, it certainly, it makes a big difference to me. Um, I know the iPad Pro has had it too, but you know, that's a that's a fancy tablet. I, I don't know if I'd call that a full-fledged laptop just yet, uh, even with the case. But Dana, so I, I think what's cool about the Pro 8 is that it has a bigger screen than before because before they were like 12.1. It was like a little smaller than like a 13-inch Ultrabook, but now it's like fully competitive. It has a, you know, a 13-inch screen. It has a 120 hertz display. Uh, I still, I like the type covers. Um, the keyboard is good. The trackpad has always been kind of iffy. Uh, how is the overall experience? Would you use this over a like MacBook Air? 
or an XPS 13? So the problem with that comparison, and I noted this in the review, is that the price is so similar. So I think um, this version of the Surface Pro addresses a number of the complaints that you guys had last year. Um, Obviously, the keyboard is still not included in the price, which remains a sticking point for me. It's 180 bucks, just so you know. So, um, but they also raised the starting price and they did that both by eliminating a base core i3 configuration that had cost 750 bucks last year. And so, but they also raised the price of the base core i5 configuration by a few hundred bucks. So what you're looking at is a starting price of 1100 with the keyboard, which is 180. So that brings the starting price to 1280. And um, that puts it in in ultra-portable laptop territory. And I think that really raises the bar for recommending the Surface Pro. It's not that I recommend it. I don't recommend it. And in fact, if you look at the score, I think I scored at 85. So that's a pretty darn good score for an Engadget review. It's just like the higher the price, either the the higher the bar for recommending it and the more caveats I have to attach. And it's like, eh, like, Mm -hmm. do at that price, do I necessarily recommend it? for over an XPS 13, which we love and which also has a touchscreen. Not for everybody, you know, Um, not for everybody. It well, XPS 13 does not go into like tablet mode unless you get the two in one, which is a little more. It's a little more expensive and it's like a heavy tablet. That's like a three Mm -hmm. and a half pound tablet. I bought my wife one and she loves it. But, you know, she never really uses it in tablet mode. yeah. Yeah. Do you do you think like the market for the Surface Pro is kind of getting there, Dana? Do you think like especially for students? I can imagine like when I went to college, right? In 2001, I built myself a desktop PC because laptops back then just were not super capable, you know? Like the first Titanium PowerBook came out, I think, but even then like that was it was it was not much of a powerhouse. It just looked really nice. Um, do you think a student or somebody you know who uses their computer maybe differently than we do, uh, you know, as working professionals, do you think they would like a Pro Eight? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think certainly how you intend to use the touchscreen is is part of it. I mean, if like me, you only use the touchscreen ad hoc, you know, when your finger is convenient, you're going to get a similar experience out of the XPS thirteen. And then it comes down to factors like battery life and how much weight you can tolerate. I mean, one thing about the Surface Pro that I think can't be underestimated is um, just how light it is in the bag. Um, This was a big improvement over my MacBook, um, (laughs) over, you know, uh, the MacBook Pro that I normally carry, the 13-inch. And I mean, it's the, with the keyboard, it's, um, it's lighter, but even the charger itself is so much smaller and more compact. So, um, I think that's something to consider as well. And for me is the main reason why I would consider this over a traditional machine. But even then I'm thinking of it in terms of, I don't necessarily know that I want the Surface Pro as my main machine. Um, but as an auxiliary machine, yes, like over an iPad Pro any day, like it's the thing I want to take on vacation or away from my main machine. But at this price, again, you need to be able to afford a second machine or yeah. even a first. That's uh, that's always been the thing with the Pro 8, but I do think like, especially for people who have Windows machines and you have a desktop or something, you still want a portable machine. You want something to take away. So I totally see that use case there. And uh, everybody go check out Dana's review of the Surface Pro 8. I want to quickly move on to like the laptop studio, which I think is the like weirdest transformer-like looking thing from the Surface event. And uh, basically, RIP Surface Book. 
because we've talked about the Surface Book and its design issues and the fact that Microsoft had to stuff the CPUs and all the hardware, like pretty much all the PC hardware behind the screen. Mm -hmm. Uh, Last year, when I I reviewed the Surface Book 3, I was like, "Uh, this is bad. You can't. You can't sell a laptop for $2,500 with such a slow CPU. And it's because of this weird design that Microsoft was basically did with the book series. So they are back with another weird design. And <laughs> I have to say, I like it. Um, yeah. I like what they're doing. I like the way it feels. Um, go check out my full review. But it, like, it feels good. Uh, I have the four pound i7 model um, holding it in my hand. It feels very solid. That weird like sandwich stacked uh, bottom design. I, it doesn't really bother me when it's like on my lap. But it is a thing that makes me think like, man, if they had just gone all the way and just been a little thicker, uh, maybe we could have more ports. Maybe we could mm. have more than two USB-C ports. Maybe I could get my micro SD card slot back or something. Uh, the killer feature of this laptop is that tilting screen. So you can pull the screen out for, uh, towards you. It'll rest between the keyboard and the trackpad. You could pull it all the way down. It'll turn to like a mini easel. And uh, one thing, Microsoft, I don't know if Microsoft showed this off at the event, Sherlyn, but like a normal, like a convertible uh, 360 degree laptop, you can also mm-hmm. flip the screen all the way around and yep. just mount it on the back so yep. that the keyboard is behind it and the screen is just like up which is really good if you're doing a presentation or something. Did they show that off or is that just like a weird thing? They did. That okay. I mean, I, I tried it. They didn't like yeah. show it off. That, But that's the configuration I had most trouble with it in though because yeah. when you, I don't know if you experienced this in your review too, this, this hit, the, the screen just kind of popped out of the hinge when I was trying to push it back down in yeah. this configuration. Did that happen for you too? I don't think it did, but uh, okay. I, th- I think you learn, you kind of learn like how yeah. to manage the screen because I also had some instances where it has this really nice uh, one finger pull up screen module. So mm. like the hinge itself is, it's strong, but easy enough for you to just like open up your laptop without too much struggle. But if you push too much on the top of the screen, as you're opening it up, it'll like pop out. So like, you know, that's the thing. You just kind of learn to live with it. Uh, my main thing, you know, talking with Microsoft, they said, this hinge has gone through a lot of work. Uh, the hinge itself is kind of like unique because we just haven't seen this before on a Microsoft device. We've talked about seeing similar things on the HP Spectre uh, Folio and also some Acer laptops. The Concept D Easel, I believe, also had this. Um, but I look at this screen, I'm like, okay, this is durable. I could live with this. And then I look at my three-year-old daughter and the way she like <laughs> <laughs> plays with all of my electronics and stuff. And I'm like, oh, no. Nope. This is bad. Like it, it's bad and it's bad like to be around a kid because there are a lot of pinch points. So you got to watch out for things where like kids could pinch their fingers. But also she could try to do what I'm doing, like yanking the screen and just yank it off the table or something. too. Mm-hmm. So there are things you got to watch out for with kids in general and electronics. But this one could be a particular pain. Um, I do like the fact that they basically brought over the Surface Book keyboard. Uh, feels really good pretty much the best keyboard you can get in a laptop because it's so like so uh the key travels so deep it's just so satisfying it also has a 120 hertz screen both this one and the surface pro 8 have dolby vision on the screens too so they have hdr which is great for video and some games um and it still looks as fluid as the surface pro 8 the one thing the one thing i'm really annoyed about and that really knocked this thing a couple points down in our review is that Microsoft once again limited themselves power-wise. It only has up to a... It only has quad-core processors. It is using Intel's 11th Gen H35 chips, which uh, are 35 watts. They're more powerful than what was in the Book 3 last year. But 
the XPS 13 has had a six quarter CPU option for two years. You know, the Razer Blade 14, which I reviewed this year, has eight core chips. I What are you doing, Microsoft? Because this thing starts at like $2,300. So that's like my main issue. If you want something with a weird screen and it's a little unique and, oh, you can put the pen right underneath and, you know, uh, draw really easily, that's nice. Um, if you want something for the same exact price, it'll probably last you more than two or three years. The Razer Blade is right there, you know, and it has... It has pretty much everything. I don't think it has HDR, but it has like so much more power so that somebody who's doing like video editing or content editing or 3D creation or something, that would be the thing they go to. The Surface Studio is more for like maybe students, maybe people in education and people who just like are doing lighter computing work, but don't need a ton of power. Do you have any opinion with what Microsoft has done with this, Dana? The power management? Well, with the the Surface Studio in general. like The laptop studio? The Laptop Studio, yeah, because the Surface Laptop Studio is the full name. Yes. <laughs> um, because you looked at some of the book stuff, like, back in the day, too, I believe. And it was a design that basically was not long for this earth. Um, <laughs> do you think this was a smart shift for Microsoft with the Laptop Studio? Um, I would want to spend more time with it. Um, I, I think I tested the Surface book maybe in its first or very second generation, I recall, yeah. Um, so my memory of it then, um, I don't want to spend too much time boring you guys down me- uh, memory lane, but I remember it being some of the best hardware I had ever tested. Um, yeah. It, I think what the line that I remember sticking out in my review was, um, even my mom thought it was a nice laptop. And <laughs> I think Microsoft PR at the time kind of latched onto that line. They were like, oh, even Mona Walman yeah. likes it. But um, it was nice <laughs> hardware, and it was also like impractically expensive. And um, that seems somewhat true now, still. Yep, yep, yeah. same story. Same story. I mean, less so. I think the book when it came out was really expensive. And I also know people who bought some of that first-gen book hardware. There were a lot of hardware issues. Like Microsoft did not fully figure out the syncing between the screen tablet portion and the dock. And like there were points where like people would try to release the screen. It wouldn't work or it would constantly crash because there were driver errors between the GPU in the in the dock or the GPU on the screen. Like it was kind of a mess. And I think uh, at some point they threw up their hands. Maybe they read our review last year where I literally just said, uh, Microsoft, there are other ways to move screens. You can you can figure out something. There's so many other convertibles on the market. And uh, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe they listened to us from last time. Uh, so Laptop Studio, it's a really nice machine. I would not go into getting it if, uh, if you want something that's like the most bang for your buck. But hey, check out my full review. But that uh, seems to be a reviewed- theme. That seems to be a theme across the line. I might be bringing yeah, you to the same yeah. segue that you were you were just making. Mm-hmm. But like this idea that Microsoft didn't totally nail the price seems to be a recurring point in all of our yep. reviews this season. It's a point mm-hmm. that I made and that um, you made, and I think you were about to mention mm-hmm. Nate's review of the Go Three, mm-hmm. right? Nate's review of the Go Three. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's interesting, and I also wonder if like is this is one thing that Microsoft does to purposefully not be too competitive too, because I saw some interviews with uh, with Panos and some other folks where they're like, hey, we're Microsoft. We are building this platform that other PC makers are using. Uh, how do we be Microsoft, but also compete against Dell and Asus and HP, right? And I'm w- wondering if like, 
they could afford to be more competitive with the pricing. They where, could. where, where have yeah. I heard this before? Huh? I mm-hmm. wonder if the Pixel Book and the <laughs> like they're also super expensive for no good reason. Google exactly. also exactly. does similar things. Yeah. The one thing I would say, arguing with myself and maybe speaking on behalf of the commenters whose comments I can't see right now, but I'm just guessing <laughs> that some people have this this thought is like, you know, um, I think because we assume that people are shopping either for Windows devices or Apple devices. Like we don't make this price argument as much anymore about Macs just because we assume that like people are basically comparison shopping between the different Macs. So um, we put a little less price pressure on the MacBook, MacBook and MacBook Pro lines when we're reviewing them. But if it's something like the Surface Pro or the Surface Laptop Studio, it's like we assume that um, the user is comparison shopping among any number of Windows brands and so there's a higher bar sort of for the the thing being worth it for the price that yep. it is. Yep. So that's me counter arguing myself when I say that Microsoft didn't really nail the price in any of these three yep. scenarios. Our, our our audience is agreeing with you. J. Mike they Willingham totally in the agree. chat says, exactly. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Dana. Yeah, totally. It's a very good point mm-hmm. that Microsoft has more competition in the space too. So mm-hmm. I don't know. And also competition that they are directly working with. So it's like a weird, sticky situation. Like they can't they can't be fully aggressive against everybody because they need everybody to sell Windows and all of their other technical achievements. Uh, I want to quickly mention Nate Ingram's review of the Surface Go 3, which is the cheapest Surface and the latest version of the like tiny 10 inch Surface. Uh, It is still four hundred dollars. It still requires you to buy the type cover separately. This is what we talk about when we talk about price. Um, So you have to spend another $100 on the type cover. Okay, a $500 Windows tablet PC. That seems nice. Except uh, that lowest model is like usually very, very slow. um, Has very little RAM. Like it's not a usable PC, I think, for a lot of people. So, okay, let, let's bump up the configuration a little. Uh, how about a Core i3 with 8 gigabytes of RAM and 128 gigabytes of storage? That's going to cost you $630, plus you have to add the keyboard again. So then you're up to at least 730 maybe more if you want the Pro-type cover. And at that point, just get a used XPS 13 or something, <laughs> you know, like... That is my advice for a lot of people. <laughs> look into older hardware. Look into sales of older hardware. Look into refurbished units. Uh, the my my like best little tech gift. Uh, I bought my wife an XPS 13 two in one refurbished. Um, it was great. It was great for the price. By the time it came to us, it had 32 gigabytes of RAM. Wow. I only I ordered 16, but it had 32. Someone like, had already. Yeah. I'm not going to complain, right? Yeah. Like it, it, that's what that's the stock they had to ship out. So you've got a lot of options when it comes to like inexpensive PCs. I think the Go is a really cool idea, but man, I wish uh, I wish Microsoft could do more with it. Um, and it's just that I don't think it's going to be a super successful thing. Dana, do you have any parting thoughts on the Surface Line or Windows 11 or Sherlin? Like, do you, do you, what do you guys think about everything happening now? The Surface Go reminds the idea of like a baby Surface reminds me a little bit of the Surface <laughs> RT. Um, exactly, and we yeah. all know how that went. I mean, obviously, it's been gosh, almost a decade um, since the first round. So, I mean, we can maybe put a little more faith in Microsoft to sort of um, execute on a more affordably priced um, Surface device. But I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. It's I'm a little disappointed. I, I I saw the score on Nate's review. It was in the high seventies. What was it? Seventy yeah. seven. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I um, am looking. Uh, yeah, I was expecting a little more progress on Microsoft's 
um, part all these years later, if the vision was like surface light or sur- baby surface, whatever you want to call it, smaller yeah, surface, cheaper surface. surface. Yeah. Um, so, but I think Nate's review is fair. I think the device could be for someone, but it is a bit more of a stretch to recommend this than maybe either of the two surface devices that you and I tested. Absolutely. But again, in the, in the pantheon of like windows, tablets and what you can find for around 500 bucks there are, there actually aren't many but windows is not the best like tablet os either so i, I think that's kind of why they're going back to it uh, even with the after the surface rt the line was just surface blank and surface pro right and now with the surface go they're basically kind of trying to bring back the blank the like plain jane surface line and uh maybe i think the key is like if they can make an arm chip work well with windows Finally, uh, <sighs> that could be a good surface go down the line, like cheaper, cheaper, still capable, still energy, like inner energy efficient and whatnot. I still need to test the uh, the Surface Pro X with Windows 11 and to see if like they said software emulation is here for older Windows apps. We, we got to see how all that works. Any parting thoughts, Shalin, about any of this hardware or Windows 11? It just sounds like more of the same. I mean, the most interesting <laughs> thing was the redesign of the Pro 8 and then the Laptop Studio, and then those seem to still have their constraints. I, I Yeah, I mean, I, meh overall, I guess. <laughs> I hear you. I hear yeah. you. And uh, go check out my full review, folks. Uh, we're going to have a video up soon. It is, it's Windows 10 with a new coat of paint and a whole new load of frustrations. Check out our full review Windows 11 and all the Surface devices over in Gadget. And Dana, thank you so much for joining us. I hope to have you on again. Hey, thanks, guys. It wasn't just all about Microsoft this week, okay, y'all? There was also Google Land stuff, and I will be the first to admit that I give Samsung a lot of crap for having way too many (laughs) events, but uh, Uh excuse me, Google, excuse me, but uh, it had an event also this week, which was earlier on rumored to be the Pixel event, which I can't say that I definitely knew when the Pixel event was going to be, but I knew it wasn't going to be October 5th. Anyway... (laughs) Uh, (laughs) October 5th, however, this week was Google's big sustainability media event. It wasn't streamed to the public. It was really just a big like um, showcase of news and new updates that uh, Google's bringing to its products and services. And I'm just going to run you all through uh, all of them really quickly and then do a little bit of a slightly deeper dive on on the ones that pique my interest the most. So first of all, I mean, search results, you're going to see a whole bunch more info around sustainability. So when you're booking your next flight, your next hotel, you're going to see information on their carbon neutrality or the the carbon emissions, the carbon Mm -hmm, footprint mm -hmm. of each flight. And you can even drill down to each seat. Like I didn't, I mean... I don't think this is really fair to do, but, you know, a first class seat costs more and a first class seat takes up more space. So if you're taking a first class seat, the carbon footprint of that will be higher compared to economy. But I mean, that's that's Mm -hmm. like for me, not very fair. The entire plane anyway. Yep, Car- yep. That, that sort of result you can see when you're booking your next flight, your next hotel, you'll see their waste reduction or their energy efficiency uh, policies, their shopping, all of that. That's stuff. really so cool. Well, let me just say this. like yeah. This is the beginning of the world where we have to be more aware right, of exactly. everything we do, like the trips we take, places we stay. If you do air travel, we have to be aware of the carbon cost of all of that. And yes. maybe eventually the incentives can be like, okay. If you take a train here 
or something. If you take like yeah. a low carbon way, maybe you can save some money. Maybe you'll get a special discount. Uh, I, I'm like, that's a good way for the yes. so-called free market to kind of like stabilize and incentivize people to like, you know, hurt the environment less. That would be nice. Yeah. Especially since what a great point, right? Like Google mm-hmm. is the first w- p- way or place people see the world so much right now that like this information being put in front of your face when you're searching yeah. for these things will remind you that these are things to take into consideration too. Um, mm-hmm. So and as Mark Dell mentioned, by the way, let's get yes. it for every gadget too. Let's get. So how much did this iPhone cost me? How much, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Yes. So, okay. So it's coming also to shopping, but specifically Google is starting with um, appliances that generally are a bit more um, energy inefficient, a bit more uh, like things like a a heat pump or a water heater, that sort of thing that will um, impact the environment more. They're going to show you better alternatives in the shopping results or also let you see a way to compare the carbon cost of these things. So there's shopping updates. There's also like Devendra said, uh, you know, trying to show you how it would be better to use a more uh, green uh, vehicle or a mode of transportation. So two things around that. One is uh, when you're shopping for an electric vehicle, Google wants to make it easier for you. So they want to show you compatible charging stations near you for this specific vehicle if you're looking at it. Uh, They were going to surface some rebates that you might be eligible for if you're shopping for this vehicle. They're doing that, I mean, across a lot of things. So, So this is big changes coming to search, shopping, maps, is also getting um, uh, a light navigation mode that's built just for cycling. Um, And it'll basically kind of allow you to hear your turn-by-turn directions without having to X out of that uh, entire route. Uh, So you can track your progress along your route while the maps is still on it. And and, and while your screen is off, you'll still hear your directions. It'll tell you what elevation is coming up, all that sort of thing. They really want to encourage people... Google does think that like giving the this navigation mode will encourage cycling more, uh, in addition to also showing you what um, rent like the the ride share bikes are available in your area is teamed up with Bird and and some other scooter providers to show you what uh, is available near you. So that's another way that Google is uh, improving, trying to make you more aware of the environmentally uh, friendlier alternatives to what you're searching for. So that's search, right? But then what I'm more intrigued by are the two other things that Google also announced at this event. So one is Nest Renew. Nest Renew is a program. It's not hardware. It's it's just a program that will... Basically, it's all about the fact that your power grid at any given time is a mix of carbon or fossil and clean energy. Earlier in the morning, for example, it might have more solar energy in the mix. On a windier day, there might be more wind energy on your grid. But how are you taking advantage of that? I mean, none of us are really taking, I'm not, I don't know about, I don't want to assume everyone doesn't know this, but I didn't know this until until the Nest people briefed me on this. And Uh what happens with Nest Renew? It's a free program. It's opt-in. And if you have a compatible Nest thermostat, which is um, three models, you can read my article on that for the details. Um, Google actually has worked with energy providers and a lot of like grids and, and, and energy service providers to be able to see when the grid is cleaner and, and has more of a mix of wind, solar or hydro energy. And then just kind of set your therm- like have your thermostat go uh, cool a little earlier or start heating a little earlier when the green energy is more available as opposed to later in the day. And and that's just what the thermostats can do. They're also going to show you a monthly report and like a just a general 
shifts in her face where you can see what times of day the energy coming into your home is cleaner. So you can make the choices to do things like run the laundry earlier in the day, run your dishwasher when it's more solar powered, that sort of thing, and use more clean energy. So like, to me, that was like, wait, why haven't I already been doing this? Like, (laughs) what? Anyway. It it is, I will say... um, it it is like one of the first pro tips in in yes. energy usage, Sherlyn. So I'm glad I'm glad Google schooled you. I'm glad this feature exists because I'm glad yes. like pe- we need this awareness out there. But hey, folks, everybody, you don't you don't need an S thermostat to know this. Uh, you know, cool down your house in the morning, heat up your house in the morning, stay do stuff in off peak times because it's usually better. It's not yes. just like the green stuff. It's like when the demand is higher, cost is higher too. Yeah. It's partly about peak management for yeah. sure too, because uh, there's a premium level of Nest Renew that I'm not going to go into because I think it's <laughs> a little much. But um, yeah. but the basic level of Nest Renew, I, what I like is that the insight it gives into your specific apartment, what time of day the energy is cleaner for you, it, it makes a big difference. Like I I can go by yes, like street wisdom, I guess, but it might not necessarily apply to like, I don't, I mean, I'm in, my state doesn't have the most like solar in the area. I have maybe more wind than anything else. So I don't know. Anyway, give it a look. And Devendra's right. Yeah. Like definitely make more conscious decisions about when we, you're using these energy uh, intensive mm-hmm. appliances in your home. We should know more about our grids. How about that? Like we For should sure. know, and you should know like, uh, Hey, if, uh, if your power mostly comes from, uh, a coal firing plant, which still exists, oh, yeah. and uh, it, it's a whole annoying thing. Your Tesla is powered by coal, so you got to <laughs> think about. Day, yeah. <laughs> you got to think about those things. Like, okay, if you really want to be renewable, maybe get some solar set up. Maybe get a home battery or something. There's yeah, there's a lot of stuff we have to do infrastructure wise. Anything else from Google, Sherlyn? Because I yeah. feel like you're just excited with Google News at this point. The last thing that Google did that is exciting but also unsettling is uh, the company also announced that it is working on this AI research project that would let AI manage traffic lights to reduce pollution. Nothing can go wrong with that plan. I'm just remembering all the Tesla accidents right now. Uh But anyway, uh, what what Google is trying to do is that it's thinking, and this is not wrong, is that like, time spent idling like cars spent idling at stoplights and intersections and stuff like that it's actually a big contributor to pollution in the street level um and at the street level at the same uh in addition to like wasted time right like that's that's a small frustration for sure but like think about all the fuel you're wasting think about all the exhaust that's pumping into the the environment at the same time um so a lot of that is caused by inefficient traffic lights according to google so it's actually already run pilot tests in four locations in Israel. And they found through their pilots that like there's an overall 10 to 20% reduction in fuel wastage and, and just general improvement in efficiency. So now Google is expanding uh, the tests uh, and starting them in Rio de Janeiro. Uh, I know... And, and I mean, it says it's also talking with cities around the world, but like no other yeah. details have been given. We don't know how the system works. We don't know how many cars were at those intersections. We don't know how busy those intersections were. Yeah, um, it, it assumes people pay attention to the lights, too, because down here where I live, people <laughs> look at a red light and like, uh, that's a suggestion, not a uh, not <laughs> something you legally follow. So, you know. 
Yeah, for sure. This is meant for like specific cities, and this is also going to feed into the idea of like a smart city that's eventually all managed by like cues and feedbacks from vehicles and like lights and like sensors on the roads and stuff like that. So, so this is part of it, and we're all working towards that. Uh, I'm just not sure I would fully rely on AI to understand yeah. how traffic lights should behave. I don't know, but anyway, it de- that it was depends. it depends. Like when they say AI, a lot of these folks mean yeah. magic algorithms that right. we don't know fully how they work. But if it's more like, hey, can the traffic lights see if a car is here and if that lane's completely empty? Like, can it just do that rather than being on a right. timer? I do feel like could be better or detect pedestrians and stuff. Eventually cars should have sensors. Like cars should be able to communicate within the sea of other cars. So right. maybe we'll get there eventually. What else is up with Google? One day. Well, <laughs> Google's that was the sustainability event, aka the not pixel event. But Google did announce this week the Pixel event is happening October 19th. So we now have a date. People can stop guessing and speculating. Uh, October 19th is when we'll hear all about the Pixel 6. And of course, I'm pretty sure we will have some sort of live stream here on the Engadget YouTube channel. So make sure you guys come back for that. We will watch it with you, react live with you too. Um, And then also this week... Android 12 was just out of nowhere suddenly publicly released to the AOSP channel, the Android Open Source Project channel. I was like, cool. Uh, very, uh, very exciting. I guess I, what? Thanks for the heads up, bro. So I, I asked Google and they were like, yeah, no, we consider this the full public release. I'm like, all right, great. But, but. <laughs> we just caveat, forgot to tell you. Yeah. Yeah. It, the caveat is that like there are still going to be pixel exclusive features that, uh, or pixel first features that we won't see until the pixel 6 launches i am assuming so so we still have some android 12 surprises that we haven't now uh we've tested android 12 for a long time now in the beta so so none of this will be surprising to you um to everyone basically but yeah i mean if you've been we've been talking a lot about windows 11 and how you shouldn't upgrade at the second it drops mm-hmm. I, I would hold like off I did. yeah yeah i know <laughs> i would hold off on android 12 for now and I, I mean i don't think it's even fully ready to everyone yet i mean your oems have to be the ones to be like hey here's your android 12 update and i'm sure they're working on finding a way to make it very stable and compatible with their versions of software so um Basically, what this means is that you'll be able to get Android 12 pretty soon. Pretty, pretty soon. Um, and then, yeah, stay tuned for the Pixel 6 event. There, that, that's my update from Google Land, y'all. This week has been, has been a honkster of a Google week. But there have been other news, right? Big thing that happened this week is Twitch mm. was hacked. Like a big, Lord. big hack. And uh, as of this morning that we're recording this, uh, Twitch is saying it was a massive, it was a server configuration change that basically opened up uh, its uh, its servers to malicious users and they were able to take some data. Uh, they say that uh, there's no indication that login credentials, um, they say that there's no indication login credentials, mm. passwords, um, credit card numbers, things like that were taken. Twitch doesn't even store credit card numbers, so that's good. good. But they have like reset password, reset stream keys and things like that. So if you've had issues, if you have a Twitch account, you may have to do some work to get it back. Um, this kind of explains like what was going on with Twitch this week. It is funny, too, because we're going to talk about this, uh, the Facebook outage yep. that happened this week as yep. well, too, is... Definitely interesting that we're starting to see like these big things happening all at once. Um, you know, there's a there's a lot to go through here. Um, but yeah, at least we have some clarification about what's going on with Twitch. Uh, 
Let's move on to a quick review, by the way. The Nintendo Switch OLED review. Uh, yes. The reviews are out. Chris yes. Nottis reviewed it for us. Uh, she gave it an 89. She called it beautiful, but not a must-have. Uh, remember, the big difference is that this one has a bigger, you know, 7-inch. Um, actually, even bigger. It has a bigger screen than before. Um yeah, it has a 7-inch OLED screen before. It was a 6.2-inch LCD. Um, and that screen is kind of the big deal because uh, Nintendo basically shaved away the bezels. It looks like the screen is taking over. It's about the same size as the original Switch. Um, but the question is, like, do you upgrade? And do you upgrade like with the knowledge that, my, that Nintendo will probably have a new model entirely come next year? Um, that's the question. I, I think that's the thing for a lot of people. If you don't have a Switch already, or if you have a first-gen Switch, if you have, you know, if you bought the original Switch before the battery refresh, you know, before like some of the server changes, uh, some of the processor changes, then maybe this would be a nice step up. And you can always turn your older Switch into like just something you play on your TV or something, right? Because then that could just be your box connected to TV. Do mm. you want to upgrade? Like, is this compelling to you, Sherlyn? Nope. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's it. So this is like, and this thing is 350 bucks. Good luck Oy. finding it in stock because the pre-orders like, you know, blew up immediately as they, as they typically do. Um, but the original Switch is still around. It's still 300 and the Switch Lite is still around too. So, you know, you've got options. And I think for kids, especially the Switch Lite is still like really nice and cute and portable. You just can't do any like TV stuff with that. Um, but I've been playing, uh, things like Eastward and some more recent games and I have like fallen back in love with my switch. Um, so I am, I'm kind of tempted just to have the best overall experience with some of these games to go OLED, but I guess we will see. Let us know if you're going to go for the switch OLED and, uh, if you can find it in stock, then please let me know. Just, <laughs> just ping me on Twitter. Now, uh, this week, there was a lot of news, as we just shared, mm -hmm. but there was also this really weird thing I saw pop on the Engadget <laughs> homepage, and I was like, we have to talk about this. <laughs> Canon made a dual RF mount fisheye lens. This looks mm -hmm. like one of those magic viewer things. I don't even know what you guys call sure. it, your childhood yeah. toy. Yeah. Okay. But with two bulging bug eye things at the end, it's it's basically <laughs> part of a new system Canon is calling EOS VR or EOS VR. It's, it's for making virtual reality content or AR too. Um, and this is a $2,000 uh, dual fisheye manual lens. It's uh, RF 5.2 millimeters and the aperture goes from F2.8 to F16. Um, and, and yeah, yeah, basically you can use a DSLR now to shoot VR content with this dual fisheye lens. I'd really be interested to see like what the VR looks like because up until now there are 360 degree VR cameras that shoot video like that, but it's usually like a thing you hold up and there's usually like a dead spot in the VR. If you look down, you'll probably see nothing. I wonder how warped this will be because fisheye mm. stuff is Very the warped, whole point yeah. of fisheye is to look really warped. But when you map it around like, a VR sphere will it look more organic like can they do something with that uh, I'll be interested to see what happens here because I'm not I think VR video needs a lot of work there's some action cameras that kind of do it now but it is uh it's hard to deal with would you would you want to create some stuff Sherlyn like do you have VR projects in mind 
No, no, I'm good. Y'all can see me in 2D and that's totally fine. Uh, too this many, thing, too many. Yeah, dimensions yeah, already. Yeah, <laughs> we don't need to see exactly the relief of my face. We're good. Um, this this thing uh, shoots, it's so far only compatible with the uh, EOS R5, which is like an 8K video uh, shooter as well. So it is, it is meant for like high res, high quality uh, content. But also, it's not just about the mount. Like, uh, Canon also has to release its um, VR system. Uh, there's UI. There's there's some stuff in the background it has to do to make all of this work, too. So it's, it's basically a very new thing um, that I don't think a lot of people are even doing yet. So I'd be interested to see what this does for, like, vloggers, influencers who are, who, you know, have themselves invested in things like a Sony mirrorless or whatever to just make their videos look great. Uh, I want to see how YouTube might support this sort of content better in the future, just because it's YouTube supposed supports to, VR video, so it does, but like yeah. not 8K streaming. So I don't know. We'll see. Okay, I'm looking forward to when we can see you make a VR video, Sherlyn. <laughs> um, VR mukbang. You can be the first VR live streamer. Maybe how about that? Okay, sure. So to round out the news this week, we have to talk about everything that's happening with Facebook. And this all follows from the, you know, bombshell reports from the Wall Street Journal, where, you know, they were reporting on how Facebook is managing things like VIPs and the knowledge they had about, you know, uh, how Instagram is affecting teenage girls. Uh, Now, the whistleblower who leaked all that information. She talked to 60 Minutes this weekend, Frances Haugen, and uh, she also, you know, uh, talked to Congress people as well. Uh, so she is out there just kind of basically laying it all out, and it's all pretty damning. So joining us to chat about uh, all of this is our senior editor, Carissa Bell, who covers social media. Hello, Carissa. Hey, Demetra. Hello, hello. Hey, Carissa. What's up? Hey, it's a busy week. It's a busy yeah. <laughs> week for you, Chris, and I feel like it always is that for you. But uh, can you give us the basics? Like, who is Frances Haugen, and uh, what are some of her big revelations here? Yeah, so there's actually a lot. Like you, you mentioned, um, so Frances Haugen was a uh, product manager at Facebook. She was there for less than two years, as Facebook PR keeps reminding all of us. Um, and she <laughs> <laughs> she worked on the civic integrity team. And so that's the team that, you know, works on like countering, um, uh, you know, like election uh, meddling. Uh, and some, yeah, misinformation. And yeah, whatnot, counter yeah. espionage. You know, they do some of like the hardest work, you know, some of the biggest problems um, that we all end up hearing about. And so what she, uh, you know, she said on 60 Minutes and, and Sense is that, uh, you know, she, after the election, uh, Facebook basically said that they're like disbanding that team. Uh, which is something that we've seen uh, Facebook do uh, in other cases as well. And, you know, so she, you know, she began to get frustrated, thought about maybe leaving. And then, she, you know, as she was, uh, you know, getting ready to to exit the company, she started like looking around on, on Workplace, which is Facebook's internal system for kind of how they, how they run things. People sort of, it's sort of like the internal version of Facebook, just for employees. And she, you know, started finding all these documents from from researchers that were documenting things that were, you know, pretty disturbing to her. And so she kind of just started slowly collecting thousands and thousands of pages. And um, that's kind of now what's coming to light. There is so much going on here, too. It is. I think what's fascinating is that what she is saying is basically the stuff we, we've been hearing for a while. But now we're seeing 
documented evidence, basically, of, of Facebook ignoring its own research about the harm it's basically doing to society. And also, she points out that, uh, hey, yeah, right after they um, disbanded the Civic Integrity Group and basically turned off a lot of features that were turned off features that were preventing misinformation from being spread, um, the January 6th uh, uprising happened, you know, the insurrection on the Capitol. So it, it, and we have evidence that people use Facebook to plan that, that whole thing and everything. Um, Krista, like what are you, you've been following this for so long. What makes this situation different than the other, you know, times we've heard about the bad stuff Facebook is doing? Yeah, I think there's a few things, you know, we've definitely heard from, from former employees before who have, you know, tried to, uh, raise a lot of these same issues. Um, you know, and some of them have also gotten a lot of attention. I think what's different here is that just how much she's providing, because it's not just her saying, as we've seen, you know, Facebook is already trying to like discredit her, you know, say she wasn't really that important at Facebook. She only worked there a brief period of time, but you know, she's sort of a, she brought receipts. <laughs> she has thousands of these documents, which are Facebook's own researchers who are you know, pretty widely respected within the company and, you know, frankly, outside the company as well. Like, you know, they're, they're very smart people. They, they're very thoughtful people. They work really hard on, on all of these issues and, you know, on issue after issue, you know, she's coming out with documents that are saying, you know, all these things that everybody outside the company is, is worried about all these things that are being raised, like the people inside the company whose job it is to kind of look at this, we're also raising the alarm. Um, and, for no reason it was ignored or they decided to, mm-hmm. you know, not do anything about it. You know, so this is sort of like, I don't want to say smoking gun, but it's like a moment where we realize that, you know, Facebook knew vastly more than it, than it's publicly let on. I just think that article that you, uh, that you wrote, uh, Carissa, about what, uh, how you can say that Facebook should change. Um, one of the things that you pointed out in your, your deck being the, the chronological feeds should be brought back, right? And to be more transparent about uh, some of these internal research that they're they're hearing about. Two things, right? One, imagine being the person that joins the company, uh, any organization that's big and has an internal network like workplace, and, and just digging around and realizing you can find all of this information. It doesn't matter how long you've been at the company, you have access to those documents. You like, that's, that's it. Like, it, I don't think Facebook should be trying to discredit her. <laughs> But also but just that, I, that's what Facebook does. Right? Exactly. Like whenever whenever any of this criticism comes out, it's like, oh, that person doesn't know what they're talking about. You, you don't have to be an expert, an absolute expert in the field to see the results of Facebook's own like met- methodology and research. And also she's a very experienced person. Like uh, she's worked at Google and other big companies like she she is an expert in her field. And if she sees like there's a big enough problem here, um, I think we should definitely listen to her rather than ignore her. Uh, One of the things that really caught me um, that I think is really telling from the 60 Minutes interview is that she said that people who brought up this stuff within the company and tried to change things internally before were basically ground down by that process, right? Like by the resistance from the company and everything. So her conclusion is basically that Facebook can't, Facebook can't manage itself, you know, even though they have this whole, um, they have their board as well that they're that they're trying to you know that they're trying to set up as like a sign that they're getting some sort of oversight their oversight board um the results of that so far are pretty like weak i think too um i just want to say was it here the opening line from the senate testimony which also happened so 60 minutes was this sunday 
she also, um, uh, Haugen had Senate testimony earlier this week too. And I think the opening line from Senator Richard Blumenthal really just tells it all. And this is also pretty telling too, because last week or yeah, exactly last week, he was also the guy saying, how do you stop Finstas? Which I think made us think not as highly of our elected officials in terms of like asking the big questions. But here he says, Facebook and big tech are facing their big tobacco moment. Facebook knows its products can be addictive and toxic to children. To value their profit more, they value their profit more than the pain and the cost to children and their families. And I think that's like the big takeaway here. Like Facebook keeps pushing its uh, its systems and its algorithms um, because of uh, addictiveness, because of engagement, right? Rather than the effect it's having on society. Like Carissa, does any of this feel new to you, or does it feel like we're basically like confirming stuff we've been hearing already? Yeah, I mean that that part's definitely not new. I, you know, I think um, mm-hmm. you know one thing that you mentioned is how like just the the incentives are so misaligned at Facebook. So. Um, you know, a lot of her sources for like how she found these documents was badge posts, which is um, when somebody who works at Facebook leaves the company, you know, they write a post on on Workplace for everyone. Um, they call that a badge post. And, you know, a lot of researchers left and kind of, you know, out of frustration, out of, you know, being being burned out or or what have you. And they would kind of post some of these things, like some of like the worst things that they, they had seen or that they thought weren't being addressed. So, you know, she definitely wasn't alone in, in wanting to raise these issues. But one thing that she said, um, you know, during the hearing and, and on 60 Minutes is that at Facebook, just the incentives are so misaligned. So you have you can have researchers who are, you know, who are really thoughtful, talented people who come in and they really want to change the company. But, you know, for example, if you're, everyone's bonuses are based on uh, metrics around user engagement, then people aren't going to want to make those kind of hard changes that might negatively affect that for example. Um, and there's many other examples throughout the company, you know, mm-hmm. but it's just that the whole, you know, everything about the way Facebook was built is now just working against, you know, the people who are actually trying to, you know, do something good from the inside, mm-hmm. I think. Hey, it's not just Facebook. I do also want to say this, like I've been covering startups since 2009, 2010. And uh, this was the mentality of everybody. It was Facebook, like engagement at all costs, move fast, break things. It was, this is how we survive. We we are just a uh, we are a recovering tech economy, you know. Like uh, big tech was barely a thing aside from Google and Apple and a couple others. Um, but yeah, all the social media companies, everybody was just chasing engagement. Um, I remember talking to the folks behind Instagram uh, when they were just a little startup, you know, before the big acquisition, before everything, like all these people chasing the same sort of goal. Facebook is just the most successful at it. They've got over 2 billion users across the globe. And I think what we're seeing is the sort of like um, the limits of like, we don't know how to constrain something so big. Um, I think it's it's telling that Haugen basically says that, uh, you know, she points to things the government has done to regulate big tobacco and seatbelts. Uh, seatbelts is a big one, by the way, because it's a, it reminds me of like where we are now with uh, COVID vaccines. When seatbelts first started being introduced in cars, people complained. A lot of people complained about their freedom not to wear seatbelts. Um, so it took a lot of regulation to kind of make that a thing. Uh, and it saved countless lives. Same thing with opioids and same thing. Like these, these are all issues where the government took regulatory action because the industry can't control itself and the certainly you can't rely on a single company to do that 
do you I feel like that's a point we've heard before, Carissa, but now seeing all this evidence, is this like does this seem more and more legitimate? Like, do you think from based on your all your reporting that regulation seems more necessary than ever? I think there's definitely more of an appetite than ever um, is what mm-hmm. kind of feels the, the biggest difference. I think a lot of people have been kind of asking for this for a long time. And, you know, throughout the past year, you know, even before she came forward, we saw, we've, I think we've seen just such a big interest um, from, from Congress, from the FTC, you know, from, from different levels of the government and really kind of doing something to, to rein companies like Facebook in. And to me, like, that's what feels, um, feels different. I mean, we all remember, you know, years ago, the uh, the first time Mark Zuckerberg came before Congress, and it was just kind of like a big joke. And all these, um, you know, senators asked him like really ridiculous questions. Like there was the Warren Hatch where he said rerun ads because he didn't understand how Facebook made money. And you know, I think what we've seen um, over the past year as they bring in uh, all these executives and uh, now the whistleblower is that they're really much more informed on these issues. They understand the nuances. Um, the Finsta comment notwithstanding. Um, And, you know, I think that they're really thinking really hard. And we've seen, you know, there's been some legislation that's proposed. There's been other things that that Hagen's talking about with um, Section 230, with algorithms, with opening the research. So we're seeing a lot more like concrete ideas. So I think, you know, all that combined, it seems almost inevitable that we're going to see some movement on this. I think it's more about kind of reaching the consensus and, and figuring out what the right path is because it is tricky. You know, there's a lot of ways that you get this very wrong and, and make things worse. Yeah. And I, I think what's also super funny to see, or I don't know, sad to see is that Zuckerberg didn't appear, you know, for the Senate testimony. He basically didn't issue a comment for a while after the Senate testimony. Like he basically, he straight up just said he denies the fact that they profit prior, they prioritize profit over safety. And I just want to read a quote here because it seems like it just completely misses the ball in terms of like what people are saying and what the actual criticisms are. But Zuckerberg says, if we wanted to ignore research, why would we create an industry leading research program to understand these important issues in the first place? If we didn't care about fighting harmful content, then why would we employ so many more people to dedicate this more than any other company in our space, even ones larger than us? Pause here. What's a bigger social media company than Facebook? <laughs> Maybe YouTube. I mean, I think that's, that's the only thing I can think of that he's referring to. Or... And it's completely a different thing too, <laughs> right? Because yeah, YouTube is just video. It's not about sharing like the stories and stuff like this. There there are so many of these things. Um, he goes on to say, if we want to hide our results, why would we have established an industry leading standard for transparency and reporting on what we're doing? And if social media were as responsible for polarizing society as some people claim, then why are we seeing polarization increase in the U.S. while it stays flat or declines in many countries with just as heavy use of social media around the world? And it is weird. I call this a defensive baby quote because this is one of those things you hear from companies and people where they're like, they're not addressing the actual complaints you're making. Um a lot of these things he's saying, it's great that you're employing big, you know, great, uh, deep research. That doesn't mean you're actually listening to them. And if your company has a history of like burying things and hiding findings that, you know, from the government and from other people uh, that could potentially hurt your profits, that's uh, that's something worth considering. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll have to look at uh, his claims about polarization uh, in other countries too. And there is a lot of things we got to talk about, right? Because polarization is not inherently bad. We should have 
disagreeing voices. Like unless you live in a dictatorship where everybody thinks the same way, that's not necessarily bad. But extreme polarization like we're seeing here in the U.S. where it involves everything like vaccines and um, basic facts in reality. I think that's kind of where the bigger issue is. Uh, Carissa, my question for you is where do you think Facebook goes from here? Um, You know, I think they're they're definitely in trouble right now. You know, I think we've seen Mm -hmm. this. I think Zuckerberg's comments, you know, that you just you just read, you know, on one hand, you can read it. And if you don't know anything about the company, say like, well, this all kind of sounds like reasonable things. Zuckerberg's very good. You mentioned, you know, he's very good at deflecting, not not really addressing the real underlying issue. Um, But I think between that and you can see how just how combative um, other Facebook executives, their their comms team has been in this. I think they're they're really they're really worried about this because now it's it's not just one employee they can say is, you know, disgruntled or um, you know, just kind of like try to discredit what people are saying. But if somebody's coming with actual, you know, thousands of pages of documents from their own researchers who are respected, who were hired by Facebook to do this work, and you know, all of a sudden you have uh an argument that's, you know, much harder to, you know, just bat down or or what have you. So I think, um, you know, in terms of what actually will, will happen to them, I mean, it's very hard to, to predict. I mean, like there's always been, I think for years now, there's been people calling for, you know, Zuckerberg to, to step down. That seems very unlikely. He has immense control over that company. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, but I think, you know, we've already seen just some small changes from Facebook. They paused Instagram kids they're now um, slowing down other new product development to conduct reputational reviews. Um, that was in the Wall Street <laughs> Journal yesterday. Okay. So I think we're already kind of seeing them like go into you know panic mode. And I think once more of this kind of starts to come out, once she starts talking to um, regulators and lawmakers in Europe, um, more you know the SEC starts their investigation based on all these disclosures. I you know I think we're going to see just how bad this can really get for them. Absolutely, and uh, it's important to point out like uh, Francis Hagen. Or Hagen is not saying Facebook should be broken up or destroyed. And actually, she says the opposite. She's calling for stronger regulation. But uh, she she says that, you know, if we if we break up Facebook, it's actually going to be harder to fix a lot of these problems. It's like one of those horror movie things where you kill a monster. You know, you destroy a monster. And it turns into like five different monsters that attack you all at once. Uh, uh, separate companies may not have the resources to fix the things that need to be fixed. Um, she points out that Facebook is relied upon by small businesses around the world. When Facebook went down uh, earlier this week, that was on Monday, they're saying that was just a server error, but that directly affected business, you know, and the way families can talk to each other. Like there is good this company does. So I, I think I, I was watching like a lot of people on Twitter especially big tech people and VCs being like, oh my God, look at all this whining about Facebook. And that's not the point, people. The point is like social media is not inherently bad, but when these companies like ignore the harm they're doing to society, I feel like we got to call them out on that. So I'm hoping we'll see more stronger regulation and maybe more discussions of things like this. Uh, Carissa, like what is... Are, are we expecting more from Facebook? Like, do we expect them to respond more to this? Or are we just going to get more information coming over the next couple of months? Um, I mean, I think there's definitely going to be a kind of probably drip drip of more of this stuff coming mm-hmm. out. And, you know, as we learn more about what's actually in this, because we're so far, very few of these documents have actually been made public. Um, I think Facebook is, you know, they're very much on the, on the defensive right now. They're also... 
Um, you know, they're really just trying to like come up with their own version of the narrative. I don't know how successful that will be. They're being, like I said, their, their comps people are being very combative on Twitter. They were like during the hearing responding to individual reporters, um, <laughs> you know, who were tweeting what she was saying. And so, um, so yeah, their, their strategy has been a little bit muddled there, but I think we're definitely going to, to keep hearing more. Um, and then if I could just point out one other thing that I think is important about this is that, you know, one of the points that she made is that Facebook should be required to open their research um, to researchers outside the company. And I think that's just a really important point because one thing that we've seen from the documents that we've already, you know, gotten to look at is that the people who are who are doing this research, like they do have some like thoughtful ideas on like how to fix these problems. They've run um, you know, in some cases, tests uh, on different ideas that actually show some promise. So there are people within the company who have ideas about fixing this. Um, if they make it available to, you know, researchers outside the company who have been really wanting to get access um, to these kinds of documents, this kind of information, like I think there are real solutions. I think sometimes we think about Facebook and we just think it's like this big unsolvable problem and it's ruin society and there's like nothing we can do but I think one thing that like could come out of this that would be really positive is like if the people who are actually know these issues the best are able to you know talk about their ideas for fixing this more openly and come up with solutions I think that could also make a really big impact here I mean that was the second thing I was trying to get to the other yeah. thing earlier on which is that the two things that you say the Facebook would do one of which is to open up the research like you just said the other thing was to go back to chronological feeds which I think just is the whole reason we're in this place where where people's mental health is being affected by these apps is because the algorithm keeps trying to feed you things and things you want to see based on the one or two things you've checked out. Mm -hmm. And that just keeps reiterating and, you know, reemphasizing certain concepts and ideas. Like I, I checked out one Bachelor in Paradise post. Now I just see Bachelor in Paradise <laughs> all the time. Like I don't uh -huh. need to keep seeing these, you know, like TV relationships all the time. I do think when when they started to move away from chronological feeds too, I think there was a lot of criticism about what that would do. And now we're yeah. seeing the effects of it. And just those are the two things that, again, like I said, Carissa, you called out in your article as as things that uh, Hoggins said that Facebook should do. And I fully agree. Mm -hmm. I just don't know that like Facebook would do it. I think more open collaboration with other organizations, with other researchers, being yeah. being just more transparent in general would be good. But no, not a lot of faith there in them. They just recently cut off NYE researchers who were doing work uh, into like how how Facebook is actually affecting society. So, yeah, again, we, we can't trust them that much. I uh, want to point out that Twitter looks like a really interesting alternate universe right now where it's like it has an algorithmic feed, but you can turn on the chronological feed, yes. which is I always go back and do the that. Because option, yes. I, I like having the option, although by default, and sometimes it resets back to their weird algorithmic feed, and I hate that. Uh, but Facebook or Twitter is like doing a bunch of things and testing things in terms of like the health of its network too. So I just wrote up a story the other day too about their heads up thing where they'll give you a heads up about um, if you're going to jump into this conversation, hey, they're arguing about Sora being in Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. Maybe, maybe be <laughs> careful before you start arguing with these nerds. Um, things like that, like really contentious arguments. Like it'll give you the heads up, like, hey, just watch out. And uh, a reminder that there's another person at the end of the keyboard, you know, try to keep things civil, things like that. I wonder if we need, it's a bit of like nannying, but also apparently, like, I think research has shown 
just making people aware of that, like those things, contentious conversations, and also the fact that there is another human over there tends to do a lot to reduce things too. So I'm really interested in seeing how Facebook and uh, Twitter tackle some of these problems that Facebook is also dealing with too. We will keep an eye on all of this. Thank you so much for joining us, Carissa. Where can people find you on the internet these days? Always on Twitter, Carissa. (laughs) Yes, always on Twitter. Uh, Carissa BE on Twitter. Chris B yeah. and check out all of Chris's coverage over in Gadget. Uh, you, I feel like you're always working really hard because the social media stuff <laughs> just never stops. So good luck to you. I know how it is. Uh, it can be really crushing sometimes, but we're looking forward to more of your Facebook coverage down the line. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. All right, folks, let's uh, work out all of our anger against Facebook and everything here. Let's talk about fun stuff. Uh, we've got some pop culture picks this week. Sholin, what do you got for me? I, uh, so th- again, I haven't said so this week end, I guess. I uh-huh. watched this. This is not a pick. This is just me telling you that whatever I saw this weekend was not worth mentioning. But I will tell you what I saw, which is An the anti-pick. movie. Yeah, the movie called San Andreas. <laughs> ages ago. Okay. I mean the the rock movie. The rock, yeah, it's San, Andrea. San Andreas. San Andreas. I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. Uh, San Andreas. And then I also saw the Bruce Willis uh, movie that was basically Westworld. I don't even remember the title at this point. Uh, but anyhow, yeah, two, wow. two, two not great movies, but like whatever. My brain was numb. I needed um, the 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 self. I it's like your just, movie podcast stuff right here. It's like I don't know the name of this movie, but you know, yeah. one of those garbage Bruce Willis ones. Because I, yeah, yeah, he he makes movies. He goes on set for like a day, basically, to like shoot a thing, and uh, that's his. Oh yeah, for that. Week. I read the yeah. I read the review afterwards. You're like, uh, Bruce Willis seemed like he was just done with this whole thing. I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. That's every He's, movie. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so because I've been watching garbage, I was like, I'll I'll go back to one of my older picks. And this uh-huh. week, my pick for you guys is Settlers of Catan, the app, the website, <laughs> the basically app. Catan Universe. Catan um, Universe. It's it's available on Android, iOS, desktop uh, through your browser, and I I really so my friends introduced me to Catan recently. I was pretty terrible. And then, like, I installed it on Android, and I've been getting better ever since. Oh, I play with my God. Is this AI. your new obsession? Is this oh my your gosh. new... No, no, no. I have play this for eight hours? I've been on, like, all the Candy Crush-style games. There's just a game called Royal Match that I've yep. been playing. No. Nope. Uh, not great, because all I wanted to do was uh, kill the king, but the king can't die. Yeah. Anyway. Talk about, like, addictive... And this is something we're going to have to talk about eventually, too. Oh, yeah. But, like, the same addictive mechanisms that Facebook is relying on to keep you engaged is the same stuff yep. all these games are doing. So, like, social gaming, if you remember when Zynga was such a thing, oh. that was really the thing behind Farmville and everything like man these companies have hacked our brains to just like take our attention that's basically it so you're liking Catan that's great Catan, yeah, Catan, Catan. Catan on on Catan.com slash whatever. Go to the digital games. They have like so many versions of their app. You can play it with people. You can play for free. Uh, you will have to, you know, only play once a day if you play for free. But if you just pay the like four ninety nine on lock fee, you can play like nonstop, which is what I do. It's a very good distraction when I'm on the treadmill slash the elliptical, which is slightly less dangerous. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, <laughs> that, that's a it's a very good way to keep my mind off the fact that I wait. Mad. Are you playing Catan while you're? on the elliptical in your yes. exercise room in your apartment building in our in our gym in yeah. your gym yeah yeah, yeah. it's a it's, it's a good way to forget that i it's a good way to take my mind off the 20 minutes of pain it's like twi- yeah. this you should bitch you should ask other way, people Ron. anybody else here you got your phone let's let's play a game of Catan while we yeah. <laughs> while we sweat yeah yeah exactly maybe, maybe we're creating something new <laughs> yes anyhow anything else Jolyn? 
Uh, that's it. That's my big stress buster right now is Catan. Yeah, there you go. Uh, the Yeah, the mission for next week is to figure out which bad Bruce Willis movie Sherlin is talking about. <laughs> that is your goal. Chat room. Uh, email us at podcast and gadget or just tell us in the chat next week. Uh, I have been watching Squid Game like the rest of the world. And uh, yeah, every, everybody was telling me to watch it. It is it Same. is very, very good. And I think what is fascinating about Squid Game, which is it's a Korean series about uh, people who are basically in debt, dealing with economic issues. Um, they get rounded up to participate in these games, which are horrific and deadly and bad. Um, this show is like a mixture of Battle Royale with a bit of like Old Boy in there too. Yeah. And Battle Royale, the movie I'm talking about. But Old Boy, which is depending on the day is probably my favorite film. Like just, I, I love Park chan Wook. So uh, I think like this show is a combination of just everything I love from Korean cinema mm-hmm. and also like stories that are actually trying to say something like trying to say something about the state of the world and the horrors of capitalism. The fact that, Oh my God, we are, we are living in a society where everyone's just struggling to get by. And this game that is deadly, but could potentially solve all their debt problems seems so like real for a lot of people too. So it's incredibly well-written. It's uh, directed and created by Huang Dong-hyuk. And I think, uh, I think this guy is like, he's going to be doing incredible things. Mm. Um, love all the characters. I love that there's actually also, uh, I believe an Indian character. Mm. Um, there is a brown guy in the show, which you never see in actual, like in most Korean series. And it also dives into like how Indian workers are treated when they go to other Asian countries. Basically, it's like oh, yeah. low low wage labor and treated like garbage. So there's a lot of that in there, too. I kind of appreciate that. But it's, it's a great show. If you liked Parasite, if you like Battle Royale, and certainly if you like Old Boy, there, there's a lot to love in here. I can't wait till you start seeing this, Sherlin. It is it's really good. I can I see can't why it's wait. been memed. Yeah. I, I can't wait to start watching it too. Uh, quick shout the Bruce Willis movie that I was talking about is that that the movie is very similar to Westworld in concept. The title is Vice. So Vice. Go, it's on HBO I mean, Vice. I was leaving that for our listeners to fix, Sherlyn. So <laughs> <laughs> no, some people got it wrong in the chat thinking it was surrogates. That was the game. That, that was the game. Um, I also finished, uh, you know, uh, Midnight Mass. I don't know if you finished it yet. But I did. It's so good. I finished it last week. Yeah. So, so good. Like Mike Flanagan, Mike Flanagan, genius man. Uh, uh watch everything too, he does. Mm-hmm. One too many monologues, but okay. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah. I don't care. <laughs> give it, give it to me. Give him all of it because, uh, it's worth mentioning. Like, uh, I think a thing Stephen King does really well in his books is build characters up. It's really hard to get like internal sensibilities in a tv show or a movie and the way mike flanagan does that is with monologues which fine sure uh i did not expect a horror series to really like also gel with my the way i define my place in the universe too like it's a really big philosophical thing even though it's also about scary stuff and uh religion so check out midnight mass check out squid game everybody all right everyone that's it for the episode this week thank you as always for listening our theme music is by game composer dale north our outro music is by our very own Terrence O'Brien. The podcast is produced by Ben Elman. You can find Devendra online at... At Devendra on Twitter, and I do the Filmcast podcast at thefilmcast.com. If you have wonderful PG-13 ideas for what to shoot in VR, you can hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Sherlyn Lowe. Email us your thoughts at podcastandengadget.com. Leave us a review, please, on iTunes. And subscribe on anything that gets podcasts including spotify 
VR mukbang.